Thank you so much for joining us for tonight's Connected Conversation, a program conducted by the Idaho Humanities Council. If you're not familiar with our organization, I encourage you to check out our website, idahohumanities.org. I would like to also remind you all that you may submit any questions using the Q&A feature located at the bottom of the screen. With me tonight is Dr. Jody Brandt and Dr. Rebecca Son Castellano. It's an honor to have you with us tonight and I turn it over to both of you. Yeah, thank you, Doug. And we're really happy to be here. Um, Rebecca and I have been working on this issue for several years, coming at it from different perspectives. So it's just a real pleasure when the community is interested in what we're doing and when we can share some of the things we've learned. And maybe more importantly, getting the insights back from you, from the community, because that really helps drive what we work on next and what the focus of our future research is. Um, so we just have prepared a short PowerPoint here to kind of like um, maybe just kind of stimulate the discussion more than anything. And I'm going to talk first and then uh, about the land use trends that we're seeing and what some of the impacts might be for um, conservation and biodiversity. And then Rebecca will speak to the impacts that we're seeing for local and rural communities. So I'm going to share my screen here. All right, um, so I first off like to talk about this issue in the context of, of what we're seeing in terms of farmland loss and land use change is not just an Idaho thing. It's really a dynamic that's occurring across the entire West. And so this first slide, what you're seeing is a map of the whole US um, and public and private lands. And anything in a color, that's public land and anything in white or no color, that's private land. So what is very obvious from this map and what probably all of us here already know is the West just really um, dominates in, in the nation in terms of the proportion of our lands that are in public land. Um, and what this is, is a map of population growth in the last 10 years, human population growth. And so the red areas are counties that are losing people, so depopulating, and the blue areas are areas that are increasing in human population. And here also the West stands out in, ter in terms of, you can see that a lot of the, of the nation is actually losing human population. But the um, prominent trend in the Western US is one of an increasing human population. So what we're seeing is this um, really dramatic increasing human population growth on a very small land mass because development can't occur on public land. So all of this human population growth is, is occurring on a relatively small proportion or a small aerial extent. Okay, so that's kind of like the context of the West. And then within the West, Idaho is this hotspot of growth. So we're currently the fastest growing state in the US, so even faster than all of the other Western states. Um, and again, all of that growth is occurring on a small proportion of the land. Idaho has about 60% of its land in public land, which means 40% of Idaho is in private land. And of that private land, 22% is farmland. And if you look at the USDA statistics on the, the composition of that farmland, um, what, what we have is about 25,000 individual farms um, and 96% of those farms are classified as family farms. Um, and this includes any, any operation that's producing food or fiber that could include cropland, uh, rangeland, pastureland, and woodland. So it's kind of like a keystone of family business, family operations um, in Idaho farming it. Um, and maybe some, some of you know, know, but when I first came to Idaho, I certainly didn't appreciate how unique Idaho's agricultural land is. I'm from Ohio, where we just have acres and acres of corn and soybeans, and it's awesome land, but that's kind of what we grow is corn and soybeans and wheat. Whereas in Idaho, there's just this amazing capacity because of the climate and the irrigation systems to, to, to grow so many crops. 
Um, it's actually one of the most diverse agricultural production systems in the world. So of course we have the potatoes, but we also have all kinds of grains, uh, all different kinds of livestock, um, fruits and vegetables, uh, hops, uh, grape, uh, fruits and um, wine grapes. And then we have a growing dairy industry. And so here is just some statistics and I'm not gonna read them all off, but you know, in terms of the entire US, for several crops, we rank in the top five in terms of how much we produce. And you know, we're comparing ourselves to, again, California and Wisconsin and Iowa. Um, one thing that's really special about Idaho agriculture is that we can grow seed crops here. Um, and that's due to the unique climate that we have, which is really good for pests, like avoiding a lot of pests. And so, for example, 70% of the hybrid temperate sweet corn seed in the whole world comes from Idaho. And then just in terms of e economics, um, the agricultural industry generates 21% of Idaho's total economic output. And so what we're seeing is we have these rich, rich agricultural lands that are kind of the keystone for communities and families in terms of our economics and our culture. And around the state, we are seeing these dramatic changes as agricultural lands are converted to development. And a lot of the research that many of us are doing here at Boise State are to kind of get at these two questions. What are the impacts of these land use changes? And, and why we wanna know that is because should we try to do something? Is this, is this something that we should be making policies about and actively trying to protect these farmlands or is it just um, we, should we just let it, you know, kind of be what it's going to be. Um, so here's just an example of some research that uh, several of us at Boise State did where we kind of zoomed in on the Treasure Valley because it really is an epicenter of growth. I don't, it, it's definitely not the only place where growth is occurring and I think growth is now spilling over into the whole Snake River Plain, but it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. And what we're seeing here um, is the Treasure Valley, Ada and Canyon counties overlay. And here's an aerial photo, which is showing the landscape. And the blue, the growing blue is the urban footprint uh, in Boise. And we took past data from satellites to measure the growth of this urban footprint. And then we use statistical models to project what the urban growth what the urban footprint would be in the future based on the rates of growth that we have seen in the past. And so what we can see, uh, the timeline scrolling over there on the, on the right-hand side um, is by 2100, um, really the vast majority of what is now farmland in the Treasure Valley will be converted to an, a developed land use. And when, you, when we summarize, um, well, well, we did these growth projections for different scenarios. There's the business as usual scenario, but then we also played with things like um, different types of land use zoning. Um, so smaller lot sizes, for example, and we played with different rates of population growth because it's not really for certain how quickly the population will grow. But when we calculated the amount of agricultural land loss that would be lost by 2100, it will range between 31 and 65% of agricultural land that will be lost. And in terms of acres, this is 110,000 to 240,000 acres. And this discrepancy between these estimates, so almost double, you know, there's a twice as much, 65% is, is about twice as much as 31%, that really, what that will be, whether it will be 31% or 65%, it, it really will depend on the policies and the decisions that we make now. So this is our data from Boise State, but I, in the context of the policies that we currently have in place to protect farmland, I wanted to show this data that was produced by the American Farmland Trust, which is a nonprofit, a national nonprofit that um, is heavily involved in farmland protection policy. And what they did is for all 50 states in the whole US, they um, did policy reviews and, and, and summarized in the form of these quantitative scores, the rankings for different types of farmland protection policies 
across the US. So these six different groupings are the six major mechanisms that exist in the US for protecting farmland. And the green would be Idaho's score. Um, the light blue would be the median score of all states. And the dark blue would be the top score, so the highest scoring states. And low values would be um, weak farmland protection policies, and high values would be strong farmland protection policies. And so what we can see when we look at the green, which is the Idaho scores, um, three of the six major mechanisms Idaho is not even active in or has not even adopted. Um, and then of the three that they have adopted, they have relatively low scores, not necessarily the lowest scores, um, but they have generally um, low scores. So although there has been activity in the realm of land use policy and farmland protection in Idaho, there really is an urgent need for stronger land use policies um, that consider multiple dimensions. And this could be not just farmland protection, but affordable housing, biodiversity, and ecosystem services. Um, I just have a couple slides here um, about the impacts of farmland loss on biodiversity. And so what we see here is a picture in Lemhi County, um, which is up kind of near Salmon, Idaho. And what this picture really <clears throat> characterizes is the private public land divide, I guess, so to speak. So all of this lowland, this green lush area, that's what we would call working land. So this is private lands that are in um, ranch or farming. And then like up on the upper left corner, these uplands, those are all public lands. This is BLM land. And so what we can see here is the private lands tend to be really green, really lush, and really open um, in terms of if you're if you're a critter and you're trying to pass through this landscape. Um, whereas the uplands, they also are, are pretty are obviously really open, but there's hardly any green or, or what we call mesic resources. So one way in which farmland loss um, uh, is impacts biodiversity is that private lands have these mesic resources that public lands in many areas just simply don't. And in Idaho, up to 80% of wildlife species depend on music resources. And so this is you know, migrating animals, salmon, uh, waterfowl, uh, sage grouse. At some portion of their life cycle, they really depend on these music resources, which are disproportionately on private lands. So here, um, we urgently need more protections and programs for music ecosystems, which, which occurred disproportionately on private lands. And then the second way in which farmland loss um, impacts conservation and biodiversity is this issue of wildlife connectivity. So again, here we have kind of like this idealized um, private land working landscape, and you know, it's just a wide open spaces for these these migrating ungulates to pass through. So that's kind of our best case scenario. Our worst case scenario is we turn into something like this, um, worst case for, for the ungulates, the migrators. Um, and this is kind of an impenetrable landscape for, for a lot of migrating animals. And with what's going on in Idaho now, what we're finding is, is we kind of have this in-between landscape. And so we, we still do have um, passability or connectivity, um, but you have a subdivision here and maybe an agricultural easement over there and still working lands over here. And so there is still is connectivity, but really we, what, if we could, we could get more bang for our buck or better outcomes if we had a more systematic targeted implement, implementation of land use policy or private land protection. Um, because even this amount of disruption of connectivity in the landscape does have a major impact on, on biodiversity. Um, so now, Rebecca, now it's, it's you, and I'm going to turn off my um, microphone here. Great. Thanks, Jody. So I'm a rural sociologist here at Boise State, and I wanted to speak a little bit to thinking about how farmland loss can potentially impact farmers and um, communities. 
And one of the important things I think that needs to be considered in this conversation is that land use change is occurring in concert with a lot of broader changes in the agriculture and food system. Sometimes I'll refer to this as the agri-food system. In many decades, we have had processes of industrialization, globalization, and concentration that have led to us to have fewer farms, but ones that tend to be far larger. Can you change the slide for me, Jody? Thank you. Um, one more time, one more click, there we go. So over time, the share of larger farms has increased. And in 2017, farms with over a million dollars in sales accounted for about 68% of all the value of agricultural production. Um, and this was up from 28% in 1987. So there is one way we can see a pretty dramatic shift happening. Um, and importantly, the share of mid-sized farms has decreased. So in 2017, farms with $250,000 in revenue made up about 10% of all production value. And this was down from 45% in 1987. Can you click one more time for me, Joni? Thanks. The acreage and cropland is also becoming increasingly concentrated in the hands of a small number of very large farms. As of 2012, 36% of all cropland was on farms with at minimum 2,000 acres. Um, and this was up from 15% in 1987. Um, and the average of cropland acreage doubled between 1987 and 2012, going from about 650 acres to a little over 1,200 acres. In contrast to this overall trend in the agriculture of consolidation, and this is kind of interesting for Idaho, there has been less consolidation in cattle, cow, calf operations. Um, so I think that's one important thing to note. Um, but again, we still see an overarching trend towards kind of industrialization um, and globalization. Um, so again, if we, if we think about other aspects of that, we might look to specialization um, and this is where we see farms growing fewer crops on average. Um, and so this really represents a movement towards monocropping and away from more polycultural systems. Field crop operators often now just grow two to three crops. Um, and with livestock production, there's often um, no production or much less production of crops um, and rather um, an increasing reliance on purchased feed. Despite this increased consolidation, um, most production continues to be carried out by family farms. So Jody mentioned this, I think, um, percentage of 96% of family farms. Um, and this is true that we still have a predominance of family farms. Um, and one, I think, important metric with this is that family farms accounted for 90% of farms with at least a million dollars in sales in 2015 um, and produced 83% of production from million dollar farms. So this is also thinking about how the term family farm can be somewhat misleading. It may not necessarily be what we conjure in our mind of what a family farm is, that a lot of family farms are very large in scale um, and may not necessarily be recognized by many as what we would think a family farm might look like. The consolidation of farmland is also important um, and obviously very relevant to our conversation today. In 2012, 36% of cropland was held by large um, and mid-sized farms. Um, and this is a shift from previous times. Um, in 1987, for instance, while large farms operated about 15% of cropland, mid-sized farms operated more than 50% of cropland. So we're seeing those kind of mid-scale farms um, definitely having kind of a decrease in the amount of cropland. Um, this consolidation um, of farmland has led to a lack of available farmland for many farmers, particularly those who are looking to lease land. Um, and this has also led to overall higher prices for farmland, creating a more competition for that land. And it's also made it more difficult for new farmers, right? People who want to kind of get into farming, made it more difficult for them to enter. Um, and um, Jody, if you can do one more click for me, I think another important note here is thinking about the concentration, not only of kind of production, but the other aspects of the agriculture and food system. And we see that large corporate firms are playing a really important role in coordinating agriculture globally. The use of contracts has become increasingly evident. This is particularly true in hog and poultry production. Um, there's been many firms, um, there are many firms that operate many uh, multiple farms. 
And then, so again, we see this consolidation also happening in other um, sectors. So in this um, graphic, we can see consolidation in the seed industry, um, which we, we which is a sector of the agri-food system where we have seen, again, pretty dramatic consolidation occurring. Can you click for me, Jody? Thanks, one more time. So input costs are increasing, increasing and most farms um, are seeing a decline in their incomes. And together this has created a situation where for many it's difficult to survive. And this is particularly true for what we call kind of the ag of the middle. So those kind of middle range or middle scale farms. So this first table that we're seeing here is showing that the scale of um, farm is related to the share of income coming from the farm from farming. Um, and so one thing we've seen is that because the ag of the middle has proven to be really vulnerable to consolidation because of many of these factors that we've talked about, we have seen an increase in off-farm employment. So this is in a farming household where someone is now increasingly working off the farm. And we see that this varies somewhat by the um, size of the operation that the smaller farms are more likely to have um, a greater share of their income coming from off farm. Um, can you click one more time for me, Jody? I have um, a couple other tables here that I wanted to show. We can see here that this also varies by region, right? Um, and click one more time, Jody. Thanks. That we also see that this varies by commodity specialization and that field crops in particular tend to fare more poorly. So thinking about this kind of ag of the middle and how farms are surviving, there is increasing importance in, in having a source of income off the farm in order to, for farms to be able to um, be financially um, viable for, for a household. Another note here is that the average age of farmers has been increasing. Um, and this combination of factors has led to many farms being really vulnerable to land use conversion. Um, and this is selling to larger firms and also selling to development. This disappearing ag of the middle is concerning for rural communities because this group of producers, this agriculture of the middle has also been found to be more likely to employ more people, to utilize local services, to contribute to local institutions, and to kind of help maintain overall well-being in rural communities. One more click for me, Jody. Thanks. At the same time, we have an increase in this urban population, as Jody was mentioning, and an expansion of the urban landscape into formerly rural landscapes. Um, and here we might refer to the urban-rural interface. This is the space where the urban and the rural meet. Many farms exist at this urban-rural interface, including here in the Treasure Valley. Um, but these farms are obviously really vulnerable to land use change and conversion, given their proximity to this growing urban landscape. So this is coupled with the other dynamics that we've already been talking about, as well as things like changes in climate. Some studies have suggested that rural areas are gonna be more likely to suffer from changing climate. And in, in some research colleagues and I have done, we found that local farmers um, are facing some of these challenges and are also really working to figure out innovative ways of addressing these various pressures that they face. So if we bring this all together, we see that farmers at this urban rural interface face a lot of challenges and pressures um, and also some unique opportunities. Can you click for me, Jody, please? So in addition to what we've already spoken about, challenges for farmers at this urban rural interface include dealing with potential conflict between like ag, ag folks and non-ag folks, for instance, the presence of tractors, for instance, on roads can, can be a source of conflict. We see issues of rising land prices and this pressure to convert land to development. But there's also some great opportunities for farmers that reside at this urban-rural interface. And this includes being in close proximity to local food consumers. Farming in the shadow of metropolitan regions can mean greater access for farmers to consumers and also for consumers to farmers. And we find that some of these smaller scale farmers who are more likely to engage in direct to consumer opportunities like farmer's market or a CSA are also more likely to reside in this kind of urban rural interface. 
And we also see that um, some of this kind of ag of the middle is also more likely to be in that zone. At the household level, these farms have greater access to institutions and resources than when they reside in this space. Um, and they also have access to things like, you know, healthcare, other jobs if they need that off-farm employment, et cetera. So there are some real benefits for agriculture residing at this urban-rural interface. Can you click for me, Jody? So rural communities are therefore, you know, really vulnerable to land use conversion in many ways. Um, and many of the reasons to protect farmland involve supporting local communities, both rural and urban alike. Um, and some of these include ensuring the ongoing production of food and fiber. Often the most productive farmland is also the farmland that's being converted to development. And these smaller scale farms that I was just speaking to are more likely to exist at this urban rural interface. Um, and they also may be more likely to be able to support kind of local food systems and influence local food security. They also might be more likely to engage in something that's been referred to as civic agriculture, that is farmers who are highly engaged in the local community. And so that can be really important for the health and well-being of rural communities um, and, and really encourage those connections between urban and rural people. The other point here is that um, there are important ways in which um, preserving land at this urban rural interface in particular can help urban, I'm sorry, help rural economies and communities survive and thrive. Agriculture serves as the base for many rural communities and is keeping the land and farming. By keeping the land and farming, it can really help maintain that economic foundation. Um, in addition to some of these kind of obvious economic benefits that farmers um, derive directly from sales, we can also think about how farmers buy equipment, they buy seeds, um, they help maintain this land in some really important ways, um, including some of the, the things that Jody was speaking to earlier. Um, we also can see that some studies have demonstrated that residential developments cost munis municipalities more than the ta tax revenues that they generate. So there's also some other kind of economic benefits to the local rural communities that exist in that regard as well. In addition to these kind of economic benefits, I think that many of us can probably think about non-economic benefits as well, right? So a sense of place, um, the beauty of the landscape, um, sentimental attachment to the landscape, a feeling of local heritage, et cetera. These are other reasons that preserving farmland can really be beneficial to rural communities and also people from urban places that are proximate to those rural communities. Um, and finally, people have noted that um, farmland preservation can help stem urban sprawl and help to ensure future sustainability of ecosystems and rural communities um, and regional communities more broadly. We also know from some of the previous research that we've done um, that folks in the Treasure Valley are really concerned with the loss of farmland um, and that this concern is, uh, has been found to be greater among rural residents and those living at this urban rural interface. So I think that's also just a really important thing for us to, to know. And recognize the importance of agriculture for Idahoans, particularly those living in rural places and those living at this urban-rural interface, forces us to confront the realities of this land use change and who can benefit from the preservation of that land. One more click, Jody, and if you want to finish on this last slide. Yeah, so I guess we just had, you know, some take home messages or recommendations for decision makers, which is um, right now there, there are some efforts and we, you know, those efforts are laudable in terms of uh, farmland protection, but we need stronger land use policies that, you know, are kind of integrative and, and consider multiple dimensions, the rural, rural communities, biodiversity, ecosystem services, and those multiple different dimensions of farmland and land use. Um, in terms of conservation, um, music systems 
occurred disproportionately on private lands. And so we really need to target um, protection mechanisms, whether that land is developed or not, but um, diverse mechanisms to protect those music systems. Because if, if critters can't get to those music areas in certain times of the year, um, then that, that's a real problem for conservation. And then in terms of the land, land protection that we're seeing now, it typically happens opportunistically. So um, like for example, a local land trust has a big bunch of money at the same time of they know of a, a farmer or rancher who's willing to put an easement on their land. Um, so they're not really, there's not really programs in place that enable um, land trust to systematically um, prioritize different parcels of land and have a money flow and a system to um, place place easements or land protection on 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 the places in a in a planned way and so more targeted placement of private land conservation would would provide greater benefits and that's that's all we have in terms of the PowerPoint. Awesome. Well, thank you both for the insight on both of your perspectives, you know, just the different ways that this issue is not only important, but also how it affects people and the different ways to approach it as a whole. The first question we have, um, which states rank high in terms of policies to protect farmlands? Yeah, there's a bunch of good questions here in the chat. So I think um, and I, several of them have to do with this one slide that I showed, which was those um, protection policies. So maybe I'll just sh show that one again, if that's okay. Oh, totally. Um, I'm trying to find my controls here. Ah, there it is. Okay. So I, I just want to point out that this is not my, my data or our data, that this was a report published by um, by a national NGO, but I'll tell you what I know about this data. Um, so the first question was, which states rank high in terms of policy to protect farmlands? And um, so it tends to be the coastal states, and there's two reasons for that. One is because they've been dealing with this issue for a long time. So if you think about California and Oregon and Washington on the West Coast, and then on the East Coast, you have you know, Connecticut and Rhode Island and Maryland, they've been, that for, me, for many decades, they've had this urban growth and urban sprawl. And so that's one reason they've kind of developed these systems, these statewide systems to do land use policy and farmland protection. And then the other reason is those states tend to be politically liberal. Um, so, um, you know, Politically liberal folks tend to be more open to land use planning in general and farmland protection policies, whereas politically conservative states tend to be opposed to any kind of centralized type of land use planning. So yeah, what you see is in this trend, if, if, you, if I had a map to show you of like the whole nation ranked in different colors based on their overall score, you would see this general trend of the coastal states having higher, higher, stronger land use policies. And then the center states um, or more mid-range states in the middle that haven't been experiencing um, land use uh, development for that long and are, who are also more politically conservative, they would tend to have lower or weaker land use planning scores. Um, and then another question here, that's a good one. So independent land trusts. Um, they are not actually one of the six policies that are considered. Um, the PACE, that is the federal slash state easement program. Um, but what, what they did here, they were looking at kind of federal and state policies. And local land trusts, that's not something that's a state or a federal policy. Those are more ground roots um, efforts that they need like donations from private organizations in order to make those farmland protection investments. So I don't have any data on how states rank in terms of far in, in terms of like these ground roots efforts. This was this 
report or this data analysis was really focused on federal and state policies. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that and showing that table again. I think it was definitely very helpful. And this next question, I think, will be geared more towards Rebecca. Um, so the skills to do well at like a farmer's market, you know, those like super social, you know, salesman skills, essentially, they're quite different from those needed on, you know, the family farm, you know, with the labor aspect um, from what the person asking the question has seen. So what's your experience or research in that kind of skill set, skill set divide, if you have any? Yeah, well, I can speak to this both from a research perspective and also from a personal perspective. Before going back to graduate school to become a professor, I was a farmer's market manager. And so I have some experience from this as, as a kind of from the farmer's market manager side. And so, yeah, I mean, it of course varies, you know, um, it varies a lot based, you know, um, by farm. And I think that, you know, one of the um, opportunities for farmers markets and also the challenges is that you wear many hats and one of those hats is helping farmers market themselves and so you play a role sometimes when you're in the uh, in that farmers market manager job of helping someone figure out how to lay out their table <laughs> how to make the you know things attractive you know you help sometimes with pricing um and so I think that that sometimes that's true, right? There, there sometimes is a mismatch between the skills that make for a great farmer um, in terms of like the production side of it and the skills that make for a good marketer. You know, on the other hand, I've seen many farm farmers do a fantastic job. And, and one of the things we know from the research is also some of that kind of marketing side gets delegated. Um, there is sometimes a gendered component to that, that in some instances you see in a kind of traditional farm family that a wife might be more likely to be the one to go do the direct marketing and think about that marketing side. Although, of course, that's not always the case. That sometimes when smaller scale farmers use an apprenticeship or internship program, that sometimes those interns or apprentices are the ones that play that role. Um, so yeah, I think that that can be true. And also I think that there are a lot of um, ways that people manage to, to still kind of be successful in that way. And then another question from the audience is, it seems that the intermediate and now largely urban rural interface farms have traditionally had more diverse in um, heterogeneous crops and overall less intensive land use with fenced rows, irrigation canals and other fallow areas that may provide ecological services than what we see with the expansion of larger farms. Do you have any data on that? Yeah, and I'm just reading the question here, Doug, because I'm sorry, I'm more of a visual <laughs> learner. Oh, in the same way, don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's some truth to that, right? That, and I spoke a little bit to that, that the farms that tend to exist in this urban-rural interface are more likely to be these kind of very small farms. And though that's a category of farms that's been increasing um, or sometimes this middle range farm size, those, those traditionally have been farms that are more likely to be these kind of polycultural systems. So thinking about farms that are growing multiple crops and also often raising animals at the same time. And that does lead to less intensive land use. Um, and, and sometimes, um, you know, greater ecological services. Um, I would be happy to, you know, I don't have that data on me right now, but I'd be happy to share out some research um, with Doug, who potentially, I don't know if you have a mechanism, Doug, to be able to share out further. But um, yeah, we, th there certainly is research um, on that topic. Yeah, if you send it my way, I can definitely link it when we post the recording of this. Cool. Yeah, and Jody might might have something to say about that as well. Well, I completely agree with what Rebecca is saying, and at the same time, with these large operations, there's also tremendous opportunity there. Um, so I'll give an anecdotal example of one of the largest easements, private land easements in the Idaho Montana area. Is Ted Turner came in and bought this huge ranch. And then he put it all under easement. So that means it can't ever be developed. And then also it's like managed for natural resources because he doesn't need to make money, right? You know, um, 
So sometimes these large landowners, they, because they have less pressure, like their margins are less, are, are less razor thin, I think. And also because they have people working for them that could implement, you know, more environmentally friendly land use practices, they actually have the capacity to make a really big impact if they would choose to use more environmentally friendly practices. Um, so I think, I think that Rebecca is totally right that you could say by and large, these large and intensive agro industries are worse for the environment. At the same time, if there were, if there were some regulations or incentives in place in terms of making them or incentivizing them to do more environmentally friendly practices, that that could be where you make your most impact because it's easier to regulate them. And there they stand because they have so many acres, they could implement, you know, a, an incentive program over a huge amount of acres, um, ask their employees to do it, and then they make a lot of money from that. So there, there is a lot of opportunity with those big operations. Yeah, and I would just build on what Jody's saying as well by adding that, you know, a lot of farms at all kinds of scales, you know, view themselves as stewards of the land and care deeply about the, you know, ecological impacts of their operations and are doing lots of new and innovative, you know, techniques or some old techniques, you know, to, to, to engage in those ecological practices. So it's certainly, you know, um, we, we have to always be careful about, you know, making really such broad generalizations about, about scale. Yeah, and another thing that I've noticed um, from a personal perspective is there are definitely a couple farmers um, that are subdividing their land and then selling off, you know, an acre here or there or a couple acres at a time, you know, either for, you know, those younger people to, you know, have their own farm or selling it to a developer for, you know, a smaller subdivision. So how does that play into, you know, this loss of farmland turning into more developed um, less rural uses. I feel like Jody might be better suited to answer this question, but but one thing I would just add, add at, at the start is I'm not as familiar with some of some of that, Doug, but it makes me think about something I think is really cool that's happening. Are organizations that help link up you know, farmers that want to retire, but they don't want to sell their land to development with young farmers who are trying to get into agriculture. And there are some really cool kind of funding mechanisms to help support both of those people. Um, and so I think that is kind of getting at what you're talking about in terms of, you know, giving some land to a new farmer and helping with that process. And I think there are some innovative things happening in, in that regard. Yeah, and I don't know the exact answer to your question, Doug, but I would just say that, you know, a lot of farmers and ranchers, my dad's a farmer, and he doesn't have 401ks and stocks, like his retirement plan is his land, right? And um, if he needs it for anything, for medical expenses, or that's what, that's what he would sell. So I think when we think about, um, farmland protection strategies, you know, these landowners have been working their whole lives to build up the value of that. And then sometimes like if you're in a treasure valley and you can sell that land for $50,000 an acre and you have a hundred acres, man, the, that's a lot of, it's difficult to turn that down, right? To give it to a young farmer that you don't know. And Rebecca has done some really interesting research and I'll let her speak to it, but like, a major predictor of whether farmland gets sold for development is what, if the farmer has an heir. Um, but I, I'll let Rebecca speak to that. Yeah, that was just some research that um, a colleague Jillian Maroney and I were doing looking um, in part at how farmers in the Treasure Valley were managing kind of um, pressures from development as well as thinking about climate change. 
And kind of an unexpected finding was that, that the presence of an heir really played a big role in the land use um, decision process and it was leading to some people who had maybe been doing maybe more traditional commercial commercial agriculture to move towards, for instance, like making um, greater use of um, direct to farm, uh, direct to consumer sales, for instance, um, and that the heirs in some instances were getting involved in that. But sometimes it was just knowing that you had a kid that that was interested in being involved, and they weren't old enough yet to be, you know, playing a role, but they just their presence and their interest was enough for for the farmers to be thinking through some of those maybe more innovative um, things that they might like to do. And so um, that definitely, you know, there are sometimes factors that we might not immediately think about that can that can end up playing a significant role in decision making. And then with the um, public land, you know, that's owned by multiple different federal entities and state entities, is that amount of land you know, growing or shrinking, or is it pretty much just staying the same in Idaho? Well, to my knowledge, I'm not a public lands expert, but everything from what I know, federal land, that's kind of immovable. There's not a lot of activity, at least in Idaho, going on in terms of taking federal lands and making them into private lands. Now, you know, there is definitely extractive use and other kinds of use of public lands, but there's no transactions to make that into private lands. State lands are a little bit different. There is, the state does have the, so the state lands are managed by the Idaho Department of Lands and their overarching mission is to make money to fund education in Idaho. And so they do, I'm not sure about how they um, implement or exercise these rights, but they do have rights under some situations to sell Idaho state land for that purpose of making money for the states. Um, I think it's a minor dynamic that's occurring. That's my understanding, but it, it does occur. And more on the social aspect, you know, with at least for my own personal experience when I moved here, and I've heard from a lot of people I've lived in Boise longer, Meridian is essentially, you know, just done a 180, you know, from, you know, the true pure farmland to now you have the village and, you know, you can drive from Boise to Meridian and not even see any, you know, size of farm. So how do like the subdivisions and other developments, is there a way to, you know, not only acknowledge that this used to be farmland, but still have that heritage associated with it? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question, Doug. I'm not sure how to answer that. You know, I mean, I think that um, to, to do that in a meaningful way, um, I think sometimes it's done in a way that may not feel very satisfying to rural communities, right? Like, I think one thing that comes to mind, for instance, and I think there have been efforts to do this, right? Thinking about how subdivisions are planned, even how they're named. Um, and trying to honor that land in those ways, but I'm not sure how much that, I'm not sure how far that goes to alleviating these broader economic, social, cultural senses of loss and a real experiences of loss in rural communities. Um, and I would just point to a chat, uh, something that Marianne put in the chat about the, these new kind of large land purchases driving out um, locals out of business. And you know, this is true, right? They drive farmers out of business, but that also made me think about um, a form of kind of like rural gentrification in a sense, right? When we hear the term gentrification, we're often thinking about urban spaces and people getting kind of priced out. But we also see this happening in, in rural places, right? So with this land use change and development, you can then see that people that have been a part of a community for a really long time might then get priced out of that as well. So I think that that's another kind of as social aspect of what we're talking about that's really important to think about. What does it mean 
to be a person, a young person that's chosen to stay in a rural place, which is actually relatively uncommon these days. We have a lot of so-called brain drain and then no longer be able to afford a home in your community, for instance. So the next question, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to word this. Um, but, you know, kind of that concept of, you know, when you plan a city, does rural farmland belong? You know, and kind of that dynamic, especially when, you know, in some instances, a city can be really that leading charge, you know, in the broader scale of a region. So it's kind of like, how does that dynamic, you know, play in when a city, you know, at least, it, you know, on the internal aspect, decides they don't really want to worry or focus on farmland? Yeah, that is a great question. I can speak to that a little bit. Um, so land use planning, there's multiple levels of jurisdiction to that. So there could be the city of Boise has its policy, and then Ada County has its policy, and then you would have the state policy then you would have the federal policy. And those are typically the like the four major jurisdictions. But for example, the city of Boise could say, we're going to protect 40% of our farmland within our jurisdiction. But if that's not synchronized with what Ada County is doing or what with what the state is doing, then sure that you might have this island of farmland within Boise City, but everything else around it is developed. Um, and so going back to that national report that American Farmland Trust did, um, they, they developed these um, overall rankings. Um, so each state had one ranking of whether it's the highest or the lowest in the whole nation. And then they tried to look at it. And, and these, these rankings were based on actual farmland loss as a product of development pressure. And what they found is when you had maximum alignment between like federal, state, county, and local policies, that's when you have the best outcomes, right? Because, uh, and, and that goes back to like this idea of more politically liberal versus politically conservative. You know, politically conservative states believe in like states' rights and local jurisdictional rights. So they're very hesitant to implement these state level policies that would um, cause that alignment of, of policies at, at finer scales. Um, whereas political, politically liberal states, in that analysis, Oregon came out, I think, as the top ranking one. So they have the state who's making state policy. They're accepting federal money for, for the federal, from the federal policies, and they're implementing or they're working with local and county jurisdictions to make sure that there's some unified or synchronized land use and farmland protection policy. Yeah, and I think a really good example, you know, of what you talked about with, you know, the random floating farm, you know, in an urban or suburban environment, if you have the time to look up the village of Meridian on Google Maps, right across Eagle Road, you know, I mean, it's going to sound kind of weird, but there's this random giant farm, just because of the way the developments happened. And, you know, I'm sure part of it is the owner of the land not wanting to sell their land, you know, and getting multiple offers for it. But I just think that's a really good example of, you know, how that looks just from a visual perspective. And another person is wondering, you know, what can you do to get involved, you know, on the county level with, um, you know, planning and zoning in the sense of, you know, not having just that, you know, sprawling environment, but having more of that balance, whether it be denser building or just less development. Yeah. And I, I will tell what my observation is how it works here. And I don't really get down to the county level, you know, what happens within a county. But my understanding of how it works is that the county commissioner um, really has huge amount of influence in zoning decisions. And like say in Canyon County, well, all of that farmland is zoned as farmland. So there actually has to be a conscious decision made at the county level led by the county commissioner and the people that that county commissioner has, you know, on the committee or whatnot. 
there has to be a constant conscious decision to rezone that land for development. And this is the, I've gotten so many emails and phone messages about this. Again, I create the land use projections. I'm not a government sort of person, but this seems to be a really common complaint that um, all of the, or many of the constituents of that county, they, they try to voice their concerns and they don't really want the sprawl to happen, but the decision-making power um, is in the hands of the county commissioner in that office and um, tends to, there's money involved, so they tend, they tend to side on the development um, the developer rather than keeping that land zoned as farmland. And by the developer, I mean, obviously that farmer must want to sell that land too. Um, but they tend, yeah, there's this dynamic that they tend to say, yes, we're going to, you have a willing seller and a willing buyer, then we're going to change the zoning. Um, so I don't know what the solution is there, except to put pressure on elected officials. That's the only thing I can think of. You know, public testimony is always welcome from what I've seen both on, you know, city of Boise, I'm sure other cities as well, they are public meetings. Um, so even with social distancing, there's still ways to be involved in that, you know, public hearing process, whether it is through writing a letter, sending an email, or even just watching, you know, whatever live platform it's being broadcast on, Ada County uses YouTube Live. Um, so I think reaching out to the planning and zoning department, you know, just kind of asking, like, how can I get involved from a you know, citizen standpoint can also be helpful. And then I think this will unfortunately be the last question we will have time for tonight. But another audience member asked, it seems like there seems to be a much more efficient gravity fed irrigation infrastructure um, that's also now in the urban rural interface. Does this seem true? I think Jody and I can probably both speak to this. And I mean, um, this is not my area of expertise, but in doing some kind of interdisciplinary research and working with some interdisciplinary groups, I would say my observation has been that there has definitely been a move towards um, different forms of irrigation. And part of that has also been in tandem with some um, uh, crop transitions. So for instance, we have seen a large increase in hop in hop production. Um, and so changes in irrigation strategies have um, made sense with some of those changes in, in crops as well. And I think, you know, part of that, part of the driving force there is definitely, you know, uh, water concerns. So I have had a similar observation. Yeah, I would say I, I go to the more rural areas, not just at the urban rural interface. And I see a lot of farmers and ranchers making investments in irrigation in the very rural areas too. And in my mind, how I understand it is, because um, that's a super uh, um, expensive investment to go from like a drainage, ir a, di a ditch and drainage irrigation system to say a center pivot or sprinkler irrigation system. Um, so it's those farmers and ranchers who plan to stay in production. They're the ones that make that investment. Um, and that investment enables them, just as Rebecca was saying, to grow higher value crops um, because you can control the water. You have more stable, steady water supply. Um, so I don't think it's just in the urban rural interface that farmers are making that investment. But I think a key decision, a key thing that in farmers and ranchers decision-making process there. If they plan to sell in five or 10 years, they're not gonna make that investment, but if they're in it for a longer period of time, they, they're willing to make that investment. So I am gonna ask one last question because I think it you know, is really important, especially for our state. You know, If you look on the whole Idaho scale, Boise is definitely that dominant urban environment where there's, there's other small rural cities and towns scattered throughout. So how does that dynamic between, you know, those really smaller towns that have, you know, a couple hundred people that are almost all farmland to Boise, you know, that dominant figure how, that's all urban, you know, how's that dynamic playing out on a statewide scale? I'm not sure about how it's playing out at the statewide scale, but I will just say in general, 
you know, having connectivity to an urban center can be really beneficial for rural for rural places. Um, we find that the the, fur, the more rural a community is, often the greater the issues related to kind of health and well-being are. And that can be as simple as like having access to a hospital, having access to other employment if a person is willing or interested in, in commuting. So um, it's not, you know, that that proximity to an urban place can, can be of great benefit to, to a rural community. Um, uh, and it can also bring challenges as we're seeing in this very conversation, right? That, that this whole conversation is about that proximity between these kind of traditionally more rural um, places and an, and an urban center. Awesome. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time for tonight, but I wanted to say thank you again to both of you for all the insight and all your expertise on this topic, you know, really showing those nuances. And thank you to everyone who hung out till the end, since we did go a little bit over. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thanks.